I'd invite you to take your Bible and turn to Romans chapter 12. And we will start what will be this final section in Romans 12 this morning. As we start that, I want you to think about relationships. Relationships seem to dominate the attention of our day. They show up in all sorts of ways. People are constantly talking about relationships. TV shows are based on relationships. Books are sold to you, explaining to you how you're to go about relationships. And there are any number of people telling you what your relationship, being a born-again Christian, is supposed to look like. Politicians will tell you what caring for others looks like if you're truly a Christian. Commercials will tell you whose feet you're to wash if you're truly a Christian. Counselors are going to tell you what healthy relationships you must maintain, what toxic relationships you must end, and what dysfunctional relationships you must exercise control over. And then, on top of everything else, you even have people identifying as Christians online who are not shy about telling you who you ought to cancel, how you ought to think about others' theology, who it is you ought to associate with, who you ought to stay away from what relationships you should maintain, and how you should go about maintaining all those sorts of relationships. And when you think about all of that chatter that's going on as it has to do with the relationships, as it connects two Christians, it would almost be as if someone who wasn't a Christian might think, well, those poor Christians over there, they have this Bible and it talks about all sorts of stuff, but it doesn't really tell them anything about how they are to live with each other in relationships and live with those who are not Christians in relationships in that way. And nothing could be further from the truth. And you see that when you get to the verse we're at this morning. I want you to think about what Paul is doing before we read that verse. Think about the big picture that we've been looking at once again. When you think back to those opening verses of Romans, we looked at our relationship with God, and then that shifted in verse 3 through 5 to our relationship with others in the body reminding us that we're part of a body of believers. And then you looked at verses 6 through 8 where you were instructed that you've been given a gift in order to serve that body of believers. And then Paul was writing to you about the love that exists within that body of believers, a particularly Christian love. But you then again say, well, what about relationships? What about relationships between Christians and relationships between Christians and those who hate them? And that's what Paul addresses next there in verse 14. Look at verse 14. He writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. So we've considered the whole of Romans chapter 12 under that heading there, a life transformed by the gospel, with the point being that the gospel that has saved us there in those first 11 chapters that's described where our justification, union with Christ has come from, has actually impacted the totality of our life And it has reached extensively into all areas of your life, far more than you probably could have ever imagined. The impact of the gospel is extensive. We've looked at how it dealt with your life in verse 1, your will in verse 2, your new spiritual family in verses 3 through 5, your active service in verses 6 through 8, and then the last few weeks, your affections there in verses 9 through 13. This is a life that's presenting and proving and prioritizing and practicing and you'll remember projecting the love of God. This morning here in verses 14 through 21, I want you to see that it's a life that produces the character of God. It produces the character of God and that character of God relates to those relationships that we've been talking about. Verses 14 through 21 
Paul's focus is shifting once again, now considering the gospel's impact on relationships and how a Christian lives among other Christians and how a Christian lives among those who are essentially their enemies. The the love of God that we looked at there in verses 9 through 13, it continues to govern over what he says here. But now he not only considers those actions of love between Christians, but how Christians relate and respond to those who are both in the church with them and who are outside of the church opposing them. So watch what's taken place. The extensive nature of this gospel What has it altered and what has it affected when you were saved? The gospel has altered the Christian's life, his will, his family, his service, his love. And you come to these verses, and Paul is telling us it's also altered those relationships with those in the church and those opposing the church. The cross has made this possible. So the question you can press on the text is, How do you as a Christian then live with other Christians? How do you as a Christian live with those outside of the walls of the church who aren't really fond of you and don't have a high opinion of you and would rather see harm come to you? Paul answers that question here. He gives us a series of biblical principles that demonstrate love and that govern relationships. Biblical principles that demonstrate love and govern relationships and each of which are exemplified by Christ who died for you so that you could respond in such a way that you could be capable of having this sort of a reaction and response in the relationships. Paul is shepherding us what that sort of a response looks like with each of these principles. The first principle is this. Bless those who persecute. Bless those who persecute. You, Christian, are to have a most unusual response to those who seek to harm you. That this would be very peculiar to the world. A secular world telling you and counseling you how to deal with relationships with those who are attempting to harm you would not come to this same conclusion here. But you have a response to those that persecute you that's rooted in the gospel's work in your heart. Look in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse This week I was looking through a book with a young man by J.C. Ryle, and Ryle said this, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. And that seems to be what Paul is doing here because later this church here in Rome is going to experience incredible suffering. But he's preparing them for that suffering by what he's saying here. He's preparing them because, friend, persecution is going to come to the Christian. The word he uses here for who persecute you is a word that simply means to pursue, to pursue. You find a positive usage of this in Romans 14, 19, where he says to the Christians, pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. But in the negative sense, it describes John 5, 16, what the Jews were doing to Jesus, where it says the Jews were persecuting Jesus. They were pursuing Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So this is a hostile pursuit when it's used in a negative sense. It's a hostile pursuit to drive out and to expel. That's the sense in which Paul is using it here in verse 14 in Romans 12, that being a Christian is going to bring those who pursue you in order to injure, grieve, or afflict you because... You follow Christ. Remember, Jesus told his disciples in John 15, 20, remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. He wasn't trying to hide that from them in any sort of a sense. It wasn't maybe the greatest marketing strategy in the world, but it was the reality of what was going to take place. The man or woman who takes up the cross and follows Jesus has placed themselves with him who the world hates. They hate his teaching, they hate his authority, and they hate the kingdom that he brings. They are in rebellion against him, and watch what happens. You, you who were once with them, they view you as, oh, that you've defected, and you've gone over to the enemy. And that makes them angry that you've embraced his teaching, that you've embraced his authority, that you've embraced his kingdom. And what will they do? If they're pursuing him, they're going to pursue you. 
Now the question that Paul's addressing here is what's our relationship like when that takes place? How do we respond to them? And dear disciple, this Jesus that you follow, who the world pursued unto death, remember he is the one who said in Matthew 5, 44, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He said in Luke 6, 27 and 28, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Now the question I think that we have to wrestle with is how can that be possible? And that's the same question that a secular world is looking at us going, how in the world can that be possible, what Jesus is calling for here? Because it seems that everything within a man wants to do just the very opposite, that it wants to hate those who persecute you and bring as much pain and suffering to them and revenge as they brought upon you. But that's not what's in the Christian. This is possible what he's calling for here because we've been fundamentally changed by the power of the gospel. We've been fundamentally changed by the power of the gospel. Romans 5, 8, God demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Did you see what's happening there? Christ died for you when you hated him. He blessed you. He showed his favor upon you when your response to him was much different. He loved and blessed his enemies like none before, like none since. And his actions there on the cross, in your salvation, they demonstrate the very principle that Paul is calling for now to be demonstrated in you. Because he loved you, there Romans 5a, because he loved you, guess what? Sin no longer remains in you so that you obey its lust. We've been there over the last few weeks. You are no longer enslaved so that you must curse your enemies this way. No, what's taken place is that you're free. You're finally free from the slave in which you were in bondage to, and you're free to be able to love them in the way Paul is instructing here. You no longer go on presenting your bodies as instruments of unrighteousness, that you present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. This is the actions of a man who is alive from the dead, that you're able to bless those who persecute you because sin is no longer your master. You're not under the law, but you're under grace, Romans 6, 12 through 14. So this is how a Christian responds. This is how you can say, how can that be possible? It's only because Christ died on the cross and his blood shed for me led to my heart being completely changed and me being free so I don't have to respond in the way I once did. This is how Paul can instruct the Christian in their relationship to those who hate them, commanding them, look at verse 14, two times, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. What is to bless? What does that mean if you're to bless those who persecute you? This is to call on God to bestow his favor upon them to call upon God to bestow his favor upon them. And it made me think of Numbers chapter 6. How was Aaron to bless the sons of Israel? What did that sound like? Well, the Lord instructed him this way, that you're to do that by saying, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. That is calling upon God to come and show his divine favor calling on God to bestow his favor. You are to bless those who persecute you. Look at the other command that's there in verse 14, and do not curse. Bless is an imperative. Bless is an imperative. Do not curse is an imperative. What does that word mean? I think we might be tempted to think that that just means something that we shouldn't be saying coming from our mouth in a series of words, but actually that word means To curse is to call upon a supernatural power to cause harm to someone or something. So it's, in a sense, doing the same thing that blessing is doing. Blessing is calling on a supernatural power to show favor. This is calling upon the supernatural to cause harm. You hear such a curse as this, just easily, flippantly, and frequently uttered from the lips of people today, often expressing their unredeemed heart. But Christian, here's the situation. It's this, that the temptation for you is going to be to curse your enemy. 
The temptation for you is going to be to curse your enemy as a response to the pain and the suffering that they're bringing and delivering to you in that very moment. So why is it that we wouldn't curse them? What is it that you know based on Scripture that would cause us to come to the conclusion we don't curse our enemies? Well, we know Genesis 50 verse 20 that what our enemies mean for evil, God means for good. So that whatever it is that they intend to bring for us and whatever harm they intend, God can use that towards our good. We know Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. You know Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, that tribulation brings about perseverance, perseverance proven character, and proven character hope, and hope does not disappoint. So that as they bring persecution to you, it actually leads to your endurance, and that leads to your hope. And you know Matthew 25 and Mark eleven twenty one 21, that to curse your enemy would find you acting in a way that Scripture reserves for God alone to act. We know then that to curse them instead of blessing them would be a response of unbelief, given what Scripture tells us. Paul is telling you, believe. Believe what I'm telling you. Believe what you know to be true based on the doctrine that's been presented to you throughout Scripture. Not cursing then is believing truth. Friend, persecution is going to tempt you. We know that. We've looked at that over the last few weeks. Spurgeon said it this way, affliction hardens those whom it does not soften. Affliction hardens those whom it does not soften. There's really two effects there. Either it's going to harden you or it's going to soften you. It's sort of like verse 12 that we looked at, persevering in tribulation. Affliction can harden. Persevering in tribulation is going to show that you genuinely have a changed heart. If you're in tribulation, it can also unmask the heart, remember, so that we can see what's actually there, that you never have had a genuinely changed heart. Affliction doing the same thing here, either softening you or hardening you. Now, a profound illustration, I think, of its softening effect is found in Job, in Job chapter 30. And think about Job, the whole book, if you're familiar with it. In Job chapter 1, you'll remember it was the Sabaeans who were the enemy there that attacked, and they took Job's oxen and donkeys, and it says that they killed his servants. Then a fire burned up the sheep, killing other servants. Then the Chaldeans arrived, raided the camels, taking them, killing more servants. Then the wind came rushing causing the house to fall, killing all of his sons and daughters. Do you, remember what, do you remember what his wife's wonderful advice was? Job chapter 2, verse 9. Hey, hey Job, why don't you just curse God and die? But what does Job confess later in Job 31, verses 29 through 30? From his lips he says, Have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exulted when evil befell him? No, I've not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. I've not called upon God to rain down punishment on him, which would have been a sinful response coming from my mouth. It softened him, and it softened his heart to the point Or you hear him praising God at the end of that book. An even more profound example in Scripture of calling for God's favor upon those seeking to harm is found in Luke 23 from the one that we follow as he's hanging on the cross. You'll remember as he's there, he has already been scourged by his enemies, mocked. He's been stripped. Crown of thorns placed on his head. He's been nailed to the cross. He's observed his possessions being divvied out. And as he's nailed there, he he is in this place where those that are in front of him continue to just hurl insult after insult. Great enemies. What does he say in Luke 23, 34? Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. I think he's blessing them. His enemies, how's he blessing them? Forgive them. Do they deserve forgiveness? Absolutely not. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Remember Stephen in Acts 7 verse 60, as rocks were being hurled at his body because he followed Christ, 
Remember what we're told the very last words are that he breathes forth from his mouth. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Lord, he's calling on the divine. Do not hold this sin against them. What's that? Bestow your favor upon them. Bless them by not accounting this to them. Paul said, 1 Corinthians 4.12, when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. He said in 1 Thessalonians 5.15, see that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. James comes along and says in James 3.10, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing, How does he analyze that? My brethren, these things ought not be this way. It shouldn't be that the man who is able to bless has cursing coming from his mouth. Peter, writing to a church with persecution on the horizon, 1 Peter 2.23, said that Christ has left us an example to follow here. While being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Then you'll remember what Peter told that same group of Christians who he forewarned about suffering that they were, 1 Peter 3, 9, not to return evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. Do you hear that? Do you hear that among Christians? Do you see that taking place? When you pull up whatever social media that you have online and you're looking at how Christians are talking to each other and how they're talking to those that are persecuting them, do they sound like that? Friend, this is not weakness. To bless those who persecute you is not weakness. No, this is strength. This is maturity of faith. This is your sanctification giving evidence in your life. This is Christ-likeness. This is believing This is following your master. This is following the teaching of the apostles. Now, when you think about this and Paul and Peter acting this way, I think that means that neither one of them would have had very many friends, followers, likes, or retweets on social media. Why? Because they wouldn't be able to generate the traffic that lusting hearts wanting controversy want to consume and commend and promote. And yet, that's the very thing that makes them a commendable model for Christian sheep. This is what disqualifies others. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing praiseworthy about the keyboard warrior letting you know how they're persecuted. And then, whose replies to their enemies are like returning fire, delivering even greater pain and suffering while they attempt to gain the praise of wolves that are just hungry for blood. Who's noteworthy are those who bless those who are persecuting them, who bless and do not curse. Why? because that's rare. It's so rare you might not even be able to think of an example of it right now. You're not going to gain the mass approval of hearts lusting for blood. But when you bless your enemy who has brought you suffering this way, your response that can only be attributed to the gospel's work on your heart, from that response might just be what God uses to hook one of those rebels that we talked about earlier, who has taken up a position, an opposition to Christ and to you, and that the Lord might use to draw them into Christ. When you see that taking place, when you see blessing instead of cursing, and, and who sees that? Maybe that's a child watching a parent. Maybe that's a lost husband watching a saved wife. Maybe that's an unredeemed parent watching A young person, when you see a Christian not cursing those who have brought pain to their life but blessing them, friend, you're witnessing God's work on their heart. You're witnessing something rare and unusual. And how, again, is that possible? Only because of the death of the man on the cross who died to free you from your bondage to sin. This is a profoundly Christian response in this relationship that Paul is describing here between the Christian and the person who is bringing suffering to the Christian. Now the second principle he gives you is there in verse 15. And the principle is this, join those who rejoice and weep. Join those who rejoice and weep. So the relationship is shifted here from those 
that are opposing the Christian to those that are Christians. The, the gospel's impact on the Christian heart is also evident in the relationship that exists between Christians and how within those relationships we join with each other in joys and sorrows. Verse 15, Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. That the body is so unified that what affects one individual part affects all the parts that make up the whole. And he says here, you're to rejoice. It's not a command. We'll look at that in a second, maybe why it's not a command. But he says, be glad with them, be joyful, be delighted. The Christian rejoices here in joy, expressing one of the fruits of the Spirit that you get in Galatians 5.22, when others are doing the same thing, rejoicing. Now, you might be tempted to think, oh, finally, pastor, we've gotten to something that's really natural. This is easy and good. I enjoy rejoicing with people when they rejoice. I don't think that's actually true. This is far from being part of man's natural constitution. The, the, the church father Christostom noted that it's harder actually to rejoice with those who rejoice than to mourn with those who mourn. Why? To rejoice with those who rejoice is sometimes rejoicing in, with those who have received something you want. That's harder than it sounds because you can be tempted by what you were once enslaved to, greed and envy, jealousy. But Christian love is not going to respond to another's Christian in their joy with bitterness and envy, but by fully entering with them into the same joy and then when it's time to weep, your love for them is going to bring you into the same sorrows that they're experiencing. Again, what is this? This is the far-reaching implication of the gospel that we've been talking about. Unity means that individuals affect the whole. And when suffering comes to a part, it brings weeping not only to that part, but to the whole. The same thing here with gladness. Remember, Paul wrote to the church, to Christians in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, saying, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all members rejoice with it. Now, you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Think about how this plays out in the life of a church in profound ways that are really beautiful, but not always easy. When a beloved church member is called to glory, we weep with a family. Not only as those who feel the loss of a beloved friend ourselves, but as a brother or sister coming alongside another brother and sister who's mourning the loss of a mother or a grandmother or a father or a grandfather. And then we rejoice when a family finally experiences the birth of a child, a birth that has found us mourning and weeping with them along the way. When gladness finally comes, what do we do? We rejoice with them. Why is that not always easy? Because we join with them even when that same joy may not have yet come to our own house in the same way, and there's actually weeping that remains. So this is going to find us weeping and rejoicing sometimes at the same time because there's all of these situations taking place within the body. And all of this is going to manifest the work of the gospel in the heart of Christ's people but it's also going to do something else. It's going to minister to those who you join in their weeping and join in their rejoicing in a particular way. I shared with some of you another thing that J.C. Ryle noted when he was writing about the significance of friendship. He said this, the world is full of sorrow because it is full of sin. It is a dark place. It is a lonely place. It is a disappointing place. The brightest sunbeam in it is a friend. Why? Listen what he says. Simple sentence. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. Friendship halves our troubles and doubles our joys. Christian, whenever you're in a, a body that is the local church, hopefully you have friends amongst that body. S surely you do, but certainly you have those that are more than friends. You have brothers and sisters because you've been made sons and daughters of the living God through Christ's work on the cross. And like Ryle spoke there about friendship, by rejoicing with those who rejoice, weeping with those who weep, in a sense then, in this world that's full of sorrows because it's full of sins, what do you do as you come alongside and minister to them? You have their troubles and double their joys. 
half their troubles and double their joys. You lighten the load by helping them carry the heavy burdens that have brought them weeping and sorrow. And then you help lift them higher to enjoy their gladness all the more when those joys come. Now, think about that. And to highlight this being a work of the gospel in the Christian affecting their relationships, consider that these commands are once again going to a particular group of people. Think about their societal situation. Think about the structures that were in place in which these instructions come. Would masters be, would masters have joined slaves in their sorrows and joys? Would the slave join with their master in their sorrows and joys? Would men have joined with women? Think back, Romans chapter 7, Jews and Gentiles. Would Jews have joined in the sorrows of Gentiles? You see what the gospel has done. Paul is saying this has affected everything about you, no matter who you are. The impact on these relationships indicates that the gospel has changed what a secular societal situation would have once restrained and said, you can't do that. It would have changed it because this is evidence of a blood-bought family that's rejoicing and weeping together. Christian, there ought to be nothing keeping us from being a brother and sister who halves the sorrows and doubles the joys of our other brothers and sisters. Only the flesh is going to push back on you and tell you not to do that. Only enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, dissension, envy. But with regeneration comes what in Galatians 5? The Spirit filling you. And what's coming out of you is that the Spirit is producing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. If, if this is hard for you and you're looking at this going, I just don't understand relationships this way. This seems impossible. How could you join in the sorrows and the joys of another Christian when you don't really want to do that because they're getting something that I don't already have? The question is, has your heart been changed? Because that's the, that's the key factor that's right here. And if your heart has been changed and you still wrestle with this, then consider again what the power of the gospel unto salvation has done from making you part of the family that is here where you live this way to giving you the spirit that makes you capable of responding this way because, oh, you're freed from envy and greed. You don't act that way. You're not controlled this way anymore. I want you to note one thing here. Paul doesn't write this as a command. This isn't in the imperative like you see some of the other things in this section. He simply says, rejoice with those who rejoice. It seems to be because that's a privilege for us. It is a privilege to join with your brothers and sisters in their sorrows and in their joys. This is a privilege afforded to those who are part of this family. You have the great privilege of joining them. Will we do that? These are principles that demonstrate a Christ-like love governing Christian relationships. Principle one, bless those who persecute. Principle two, join those who rejoice and weep. Principle three, regard those who are lowly. Regard those who are lowly. A Christian has a humble mind towards others who are in Christ. And as a result, a redeemed community of believers is genuinely concerned about one another. They, they genuinely care, and they approach these relationships, Christian to Christian, with a Christ-like humility. What does the relationship look like between believers? You can ask that question. Look at verse 16. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. So, be of the same mind toward one another. Paul uses that expression multiple times. Romans 15, we'll see it again. 2 Corinthians 13, Philippians 2, Philippians 4. It is to have the same esteem of, the same regard and concern for your brothers and sisters as you have for yourself. 
to think as to have a high regard for them, an honor to respect them. One commentator said this, he is calling us to a common mindset. Such does not mean that we must all think the same way or exactly the same thing about every single issue, but that we should adopt an attitude toward everything that touches our lives, that springs from the renewed mind of the new realm to which we belong by God's grace. That is to have a common mind. What is the biggest obstacle to you having a common mind that he's commending here? Well, it's what Paul says next. Do not be haughty in mind. Haughty is an adjective, and it simply means high. Being high-minded, then, is particularly destructive to having a common mind that honors and esteems others. Being high-minded is naturally going to separate you from others because you have determined that you have risen above them in a particular way. In elevating yourself in your thinking, you've divided yourself from the body of those ordinary Christians over there. But may I suggest to you that something else I think is taking place whenever you see this. As you raise yourself higher, it's sort of like ascending a mountain, going higher and higher on some of the highest places on this planet. And you know that when you go there, the oxygen that exists is less and less. And as a result of that, as you look around you, there's less vegetation anywhere. And all that you see quite often in those highest places. They're not beautiful trees. You don't climb Mount Everest and go, oh, look, I'm surprised there's an orange tree up there. There's nothing. It's rocky and it's barren and there is nothing up there that is edible. There is nothing that is nourishing. The higher that you think of yourself is equal to the same result. Less spiritual fruits coming from your life. It's barren. Christian, thinking highly of yourself is going to raise you in your own mind above others. It's going to raise you so high that you're going to overlook them. And this is pride. And and I would forewarn you because pride is hard to see, particularly pride in you. You could probably be really good at seeing it in other people, but pride in you is hard to see. One of the Puritans, Thomas Boston, helped us think of it that way. He said this, pride is a sin that will put the soul upon the worst of sins. Pride is a gilded misery, a secret poison, a hidden plague. It is the engineer of deceit, the mother of hypocrisy, the moth of holiness, eating away holiness and secret. The blinder of hearts, the turner of medicines into maladies and remedies into diseases. It's hidden, but it's at its work. This is a haughty mind. It's a prideful mind. It's often hidden from your side. It's always destructive. It's sometimes deadly. Paul is giving us a warning here. Watch out for how a haughty mind might show itself in you because when it does, it's going to influence and destroy and fracture those relationships that you enjoy amongst each other. Watch here for where your thinking and understanding has elevated you, where, where it shows itself going, hey, I'm a better parent. Let me tell you who have not thought about these things what you ought to be doing. Where it says, hey, I'm a better theologian. I'm a better spouse. I'm a better administrator. I'm a better organizer. I'm a better anything. I'm a better anything so that I'm separating myself from the ordinary. And if everyone would just have the same mind as me, they could elevate themselves to where I have come. If the obstacle here to being of the same mind toward one another is having a haughty mind, then what does he commend? Look at what he says next. But associate with the lowly. That's associating with the humble. The word lowly can mean poor. It can mean undistinguished and ordinary and common. You associate with the lowly. If you're a Christian, you do. Christian, remember that you follow the one who identified himself with the same word that's used here in Matthew eleven twenty nine. 29. How did, how did Jesus identify himself? For I am gentle and humble in heart. Humble is the same word used here for lowly. The temptation for us is going to be to associate only with a certain type of Christians among, among our church. The distinguished, the extraordinary, the exceptional now, I try to avoid that some and help us out in new member class. Many of you have been through that. Remember, we have that question on there, why do you want to join the church? 
And I'm always like, hey, if you think it's going to make you cool and popular, we'll help you find a church, right? That's not what's going to take place here. That we're a, 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 a place, a gathering of the distinguished and the extraordinary. But a haughty mind is going to be looking for that and drawn to those and to keep you from associating with the lowly. It's going to keep you from the instruction here, being of the same mind towards one another. And you know it shows up in churches. One of the commentators I was reading told the story of uh, when Charles Evans Hughes became the 11th Chief Justice of the Supreme Court in 1930. As a result of becoming the Supreme Court, guess what? You're moving to Washington, D.C. So he moves to Washington, D.C. He transfers his membership to the local Baptist church there. And the church was a lot like ours in the sense that when you joined it, you stood up. But not only did you stand up, you walked forward. And as your name was announced, you were sort of introduced to the congregation so that you had all the new members standing there at one point. And that Sunday morning, the very first person whose name was announced was a Chinese laundryman named Ah Sing, who is moving from San Francisco to Washington, D.C. to open a business there. They call his name. He's the first to come forward. He was a Christian who laundered clothes not far from where the church was located, so it's natural that he goes to church here and he joins here. So he comes forward. He stands on the far side of the pulpit, and as they call others forward that morning to announce them as members of the church, dozens gather all over here on the other side of the pulpit, on the far end from Ah Sing. Last name called was Charles Hughes, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and he comes forward and he goes to the other side to stand by a laundryman, a Chief Justice of the Supreme Court and a guy whose whole career is doing laundry. On one side of the pulpit stood people that needed to heed the instructions of Romans twelve sixteen. And on the other side stood those who were of the same mind towards each other in Christ. I think in that scene you see the division that takes place when you refuse to associate with the lonely, the lowly. Division in the body, friend, it never begins because Christians are determined to be of the same mind. They never come, divisions never come because we're willing to associate with the lowly. They come because we're thinking highly of ourselves. Spurgeon said, divisions in the church never begin with those full of love to the Savior. Division comes when love for self and priority of self rise over and greater than love for the Savior and love for others. Then we become the expert that everybody needs. Then we become the master that everyone wants to instruct, be instructed by. Then, then we act as though we're the Savior that everyone needs. Instead of being united in one Lord, the, the actions here of a haughty mind that refuse to associate with the lowly are striking whenever you think about the actions of humility. I always appreciated Tom Watson, Thomas Watson, and, and this is the way he describes that. What does humility do? Humility looks upon another's virtues and its own infirmities. Humility looks upon another's virtues and its own, and its own infirmities. Pride does exactly the opposite of that. Humility looks upon Christians. Humility looks upon Christians that others may think, oh, you're too lowly, you're too common to associate with, and it sees in those Christians what is good. Humility sees in them the evidence of God's work upon their lives. And then humility looks upon self. And humility is thankful that there would be any others that would be willing to associate with me. Why would you want to associate with me? Go back to the gospel. This is, again, an implication of the gospel. Not only did Christ die to make peace between God and man, but Christ died to make peace between man and man. Through his death, he made it so that there is peace between men. Watson again says this, Christ suffered on the cross that he might cement Christians together with his own blood. As he prayed for peace, so he paid for peace. Christ died then to make it possible that you could be of the same mind. 
Christ died so that we could actually live the way that Paul is commending us to live here and to show itself within the life of the local church. What does that mean? It means it's going to show up in profound ways that Jews and Gentiles are going to live this way. Slaves and masters, politicians and farmers, teachers and students, old and young, cemented together by the blood of Christ. Why would we therefore separate what Christ has joined together in the church? Now, look, there's a final command that does come here at the end. Another obstacle of being of the same mind. And it is an imperative. Do not be wise in your own estimation. You must not be wise in your own thinking. Now, now this isn't, this isn't, don't hear this and go, oh, he's saying don't seek wisdom. This is do not think yourself to be of one of greater insight than others to be of greater wisdom, to be of greater understanding because that temptation is going to come that others would look at you and you would have them think, ah, you have arrived. I think it's helpful what the ESV translates this, never be wise in your own sight. No, what must you do? You must come with a humble mind to esteem those that Christ has redeemed. Not constantly correcting them, not coming and scolding them because of your great insight and great experience, not making sure that they know how much more that you have researched and how much more that you have done so as to be an authority on the matter. No, what Paul is commending here is Proverbs 3, 7, do not be wise in your own eyes. Think of a few men who have exemplified Romans 12, 16 to me, in regards to wisdom and discernment and biblical knowledge, they're the guys I'm calling, going, am I thinking about this correctly? Am I approaching this situation correctly? And I'm always grateful that they've never come across as though that they have considered themselves as having greater insight or greater understanding. What do they want to do? When they talk to you, they come across as they just want to help you because why? They love Christ. They love Christ's sheep. They in no way insult my inferior intellect. They simply want to serve in a humble and gentle way that resembles their Savior. I, I pray that that same type of regard for one another is what permeates our church as we see people talk to one another. When we get finished here, that would be the way that we talk to one another. That when we get on Slack, this is the way we talk to one another. That when we say, hey, would you come help me? Or can I help you? That this is what it sounds like. Humbly serving in a gentle way that resembles Christ. We'll look at the rest of Romans 12 next week, but for now I just want to leave you in what is hopefully a humbling truth that leads us to gratitude realizing that Christ, who has saved you, has also produced in you the capacity for this godly character that impacts your relationships with Christians and those who bring persecution. And this is what all those that are talking about relationships in our secular world, politicians, counselors, whoever, this is what they fail to grasp, the impact of the gospel. The new heart that you possess doesn't interact within relationships the way your old heart once did. The blood that was shed on the cross freeing you has freed you from envy and greed and anger that once enslaved you in your relationships. The love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control that was long absent in your relationships, it's now being produced because the Spirit is in you. Relationships dominate our attention. And I think as some hear this then, and you think about the relationships that you have and that have caused pain and suffering and difficulty, you think, how in the world could you bless? How, how in the world could you join with those with more? Don't you want to avoid that? Why would you associate with the lowly? How can that be? And our answer as Christians is, I follow Christ. I'm no longer bound to sin. I'm no longer dead. I'm no longer incapable of living like him. 
The man on the cross, he died so that I could be reconciled to him. And that impacted a relationship, but that's not the only relationship it impacted. It impacted every single relationship that God has providentially put into my life so that the impact of the gospel is evident in all of those. And now I have hope. Now I can bless. Now I can love. Now I can be patient. Now I can show grace because he has reconciled me to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of the gospel that we find in the book of Romans and how it has impacted all of our life. We pray that this gospel that has impacted us in our relationship to you would impact us in our relationship to other Christians, that we would join with them when they weep, and that we would join with them when they are filled with gladness, and that we would associate with all that are believers in Christ Jesus. Father, would you convict us where there is pride in our thinking about ourselves? And would you convict us and show us even where that has caused us to separate from others? Perhaps it was even unbeknownst to us till this morning. But if that is there, Lord, I pray that that would not just be a crushing burden that is laid upon us, but that we would be also reminded of the hope that's found in the gospel, that it no longer need be this way. That we can repent from our sin, we can grow in grace, and we can demonstrate a love that shows the magnitude of the gospel upon our life. Father, I pray for those that are lost this morning that have long found it difficult to have relationships with people that perhaps thought it impossible that we would be able to bless those who persecute. Lord, would you show them what Christ on the cross has done? Would you show them the far-reaching extent of this gospel that is the power of God into salvation? And that not only does his blood reconcile us to you, but it reconciles us to one another So that not only will that show forth fruit in this life, in the local church, but that's just a preview of eternity where together we will be with one another forever in a place without sin, a place without death, and a place without pain. Father, we pray that as a local church, as born-again believers, as those that have been impacted by the gospel of grace, We would give a glimpse of that now. We would give a glimpse of that in the relationships that exist amongst one another. And that this, maybe this would hook some who are rebels to your will. Maybe this would draw them to Christ because they see something beautiful and they see something powerful. May all this bring glory to your name, we pray. Amen.